Hi, you're listening to Elevate, the podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. The rest of the world tells you you can't do it. He said, don't listen. He said, this is how science goes forward. Don't be limited by conventional wisdom. So I feel like I was set on a quest. Often we don't ask the child who's having the the experience, like we need to take this out into the open and just have open, curious conversation. Our brain isn't just about reading, writing, and arithmetic. It is so profound. You change the brain and one's whole world and relationship to the world and to themselves changes. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast, a series designed to explore teachings, ideas, and thoughts on empowering young girls while celebrating difference. I'm Ramita Anand, your host, teacher, and educational mentor, and I'll be chatting with insightful activists, thought leaders, creatives, and all-round brilliant champions for girls. Through these conversations and my work at Elevate RA Mentoring Services, I hope we can join forces to foster meaningful connections in order to alter the narrative around what being different, especially for young girls, signifies. My guest today has had an extraordinary journey of discovery and innovation, one that led her to bravely and courageously overcome her own severe learning disabilities. Diagnosed when she was only in the first grade back in the mid-1950s as having a mental block, which today would have been identified as multiple learning disabilities. She read and wrote everything backwards, had trouble processing concepts in language, continuously got lost and was physically very uncoordinated. Her faith in her own abilities became gradually diminished with each passing year as her teachers and even her own mother believed that she would never really learn like the other children. She explains that the fragmented bits of her brain began to jolt a very fragmented existence for herself and she became extremely saddened and ashamed in her inability to comprehend the world around her. It got so overwhelmingly unbearable that tragically she even tried to take her own life in eighth grade. Through heroic effort, she persevered and did eventually learn to read and write from left to right. She even learned to mask a number of the symptoms of her learning disabilities. However, she continued throughout her educational career to have difficulties with specific aspects of learning. It was actually when she was in graduate school in the late 70s that she came across a piece of research that completely changed her life. She read about somebody called Lev Zazatsky who had a mental block in his brain similar to hers, except his was shaped by a bullet to the brain. It was the researcher Alexandra Luria who had the description of specific brain function that led her to a clearer understanding of her own learning problems. This and the work of researcher Rosenweig who suggested the possibility of improving brain function through stimulation. At least, he felt in animals. Completely transfixed by this belief, my guest began working on ways to translate his belief within human brains. A revelation that established the creation of the first exercises designed to improve learning capacity. The results were hugely positive, with increased gains in logical, verbal, mathematical reasoning and conceptual understanding, forging the way for further exploration of the nature of specific learning capacities and creating exercises to strengthen them. This became the genesis behind the widely popular and well-established 
Aerosmith School, which currently identifies 19 cognitive areas and has programs designed to strengthen each of their functionings. My guest was able to prove and explain a greater understanding of how the brain shapes us and how we, in turn, can shape it. The groundbreaking program of cognitive exercises lies in my guest's personal pursuit for seeking answers. She recalls her father, who was a creative role model for her, saying that if there is a problem, you must find a solution. And if you can't find it, create it. The program originated in Toronto in 1978 and today is implemented in over 100 educational organizations across the globe, including Canada, the US, Australia, New Zealand, Spain and Asia. Today, she is the director of Aerosmith School and the Aerosmith Program, the author of international bestseller, The Woman Who Changed Her Brain. And it is her vision that her program be available to all students struggling with learning difficulties so they may know the ease and the joy of learning and hopes that they will not only dare to dream but also find ways to realize their dreams. She is the brilliant and remarkable Barbara Aerosmith Young. A very very warm welcome to you Barbara. Well thank you for having me I'm really thrilled to be here. It's such a joy and I really can't wait to dig further into your remarkable story. I wonder if um, first of all, I just love the fact that it's full of so much hope, but I, and I'm really quite keen and I've done a little bit of research and I've explained some of it in the intro, but I wonder about if we wouldn't mind beginning and setting up your childhood a little for our listeners, if you wouldn't mind talking us through what your parents did and what it was like to be part of the big family that you grew up in rural Ontario. Uh, well, I was born in Toronto, so uh, but but at age five, moved to Peterborough, which was a small a smaller town, probably about forty thousand uh, people at at that time. But even before I got into school, you know, my mother thought maybe you know maybe there was something a little different. I had four brothers, and I was the only girl, so you know, five five children in the family. Um, so she you know she had some other children <laughs> to compare me. Two. And I mean, the first kind of signs where I was very uncoordinated, like so before getting into school, really clumsy, I would like trip over my own feet, bump into things, um, you know, kind of what, you know, the unkind word is a klutz. <laughs> um, you know, so I mean, my mother later on told me that, you know, she thought maybe I'd be dead by the age of five because I was so uncoordinated. I mean, I have scars, physical scars on my body that attest to, you know, to my clumsiness. Uh, and then when I started school, things became pretty clear in grade one that, that I was not learning like the other students in the class. And it was obvious to me, as well as obviously to the teacher because I could see other children learning how to read, where, you know, they have their readers open and with a little bit of instruction and practice, they would start picking up the words. And that was really, really difficult um, for me. I kind of saw things backwards and upside down. And, you know, where they talk about those reversals, when I started to write, I, all my writing was um, like mirror image. So letters were backwards or if somebody gave me two numbers to add like 12 and 14. I'd add the four and the one and the two 
two and the one, like it, it didn't make any sense to me. It just was kind of a random set of numbers that you did something with. And I remember my notebooks, you know, had lots of those red X's. Um, and then the teacher would write comments, you know, if, if Barbara just worked a bit harder, if she paid more attention, you know, she wasn't so careless, maybe she'd do a little better. Well, I guarantee you, I was trying really, really hard, but my brain, as I later was to discover, just wasn't processing information, you know, the way other, other children were. And I remember a really pivotal moment um, hearing my grade one teacher tell my mother in a parent, you know, teacher interview just after school that I had a mental block because at that term, they didn't even have the concept of a learning disability. This was in the 1950s. So, you know, one of my problems was comprehension. I was quite concrete. So I actually thought I had a piece of wood, like a cube in my head that uh, made learning difficult. So I had this image of, you know, kind of a, a piece of wood in my head. And as I said, later I learned that I had blockages in parts of my brain, so it wasn't working properly, but I definitely didn't have a piece of wood. But then the teacher went on to say to my mother, you know, don't have high expectations for your daughter, that all of her schooling will be a struggle and don't really expect her to amount to very much in her life. And, and I really feel like in grade one, I was given a life sentence. Um, <clears throat> and this was the time of what I call the pre-neuroplastic paradigm. So the belief was way back in the 1950s that, you know, if there was a problem with learning, um, you know, the belief was your brain was fixed. So, you know, there was nothing you could really do about it. So you had to really learn to live within your limitations or your difficulties or your challenges. And, you know, my mother was a teacher as she was an educator. And, you know, obviously her job at that point was to raise five children, but she decided that she was going to make sure that her daughter learned how to read and to write. So the school was right across the street from my house. So at lunch, I would come home and my mom would have flashcards with letters and numbers. After school, I came home with those flashcards. And, you know, at the time I didn't really appreciate it. Later on, I did because, you know, she took all that time and effort to work with me and eventually I did learn how to read and I did learn how to write and I did learn how to do basic um, arithmetic. However, it wasn't addressing the learning difficulty, you know, which is all that repetition, kind of that heroic effort. I did learn the skills. However, I still struggled with comprehension. So I think one of the things, you know, the take home for me is that, you know, a child with a learning difficulty can look, um, uh, you know, can be hard to kind of understand because it's like they have a brain that's capable and incapable at the same time. So there's some things they can do with ease and with very little effort. And then there are other things with the best will in the world, they're an incredible struggle. So it presents a confusing picture. And I presented a confusing picture to my teachers. Yeah, of course. Clearly a very difficult time for you trying to figure it all out for yourself as a young child, as a student as well. You know, I know that you talked about that you just mentioned this mental block and you actually physically pictured a, a mental block in your brain. Lots of children that I work with, and I think maybe even you refer to it sometimes, use the word fog when they're talking about the experiences that they're feeling inside their brain. I, I think you also may go for it, but could you explain to for parents listening whether the mental block image or the foggy brain image comes to mind, but in a more scientific way, based on the research we have now, what that actually represents for the children suffering? Yeah, so certainly fog was another image that that I use, and it is a very common image, as you you know, that students with learning difficulties 
uh, talk about. And I mean, there's part of your brain that processes information and attaches meaning to it. And it's a really, really important part of your brain. And that was one of the areas that I had difficulty to. So you do feel like you're living in a fog because meaning isn't really clear. Like it's hard for that individual to understand, first of all, what people are saying to them, like what it really means, or when they read something, they might have to read it multiple times to to grasp. But you know how, you know, somebody that doesn't have a difficulty here, they have those aha moments, like just everything clicks and they they get it. Well, if you have a learning difficulty in this area, it's like those aha moments or those connections either don't happen or they take an incredible amount of effort to happen. So the the person feels like they're they're living in this kind of confusing fog where nothing is really clear, meaning isn't clear, um, you know, logical reasoning they, they struggle with, even sometimes understanding people's intentions and why people do things, like why people behave in a certain way. So it is almost like living either in a fog, or I used to have this image that, you know, I'd be, you know, have my face pressed against a plate glass window. And on the other side of that window, there was a banquet happening. And I could see these people you know, we're having a wonderful time and they were interacting. I couldn't hear because of the window and so much I wanted to be part of that, but I couldn't because, you know, the window kind of metaphorically was my learning difficulty that kept me separate from, you know, understanding just normal human discourse and relationships and, and, you know, what people were saying for me, you know, I mean, it wasn't until after I addressed my learning difficulty that I understood the joy of having, you know, human conversation. Uh, before that, I was afraid if somebody would ask me a question because I thought, okay, am I going to understand what they're asking? You know, and then they're going to think, you know, I'm not very intelligent because I would just smile and hope they would go away. So it is that feeling like there's a fog or a disconnect. Um, and you know, the other thing is, you know, I talk about how students with learning difficulties often put in a heroic amount of work, right? Like so what, what a child without a learning difficulty can accomplish in 15 minutes, it might take three hours of work and effort for the child with a learning difficulty. And no, you know, wonder, sometimes they just give up, right? Like, I mean, why do I want to spend three hours doing something and the results I get aren't you know don't reflect that three hours of work yeah it's like you say if the teacher still then reflects it back and says you haven't worked hard or you haven't tried hard that day um that must be so demoralizing for those poor pupils it's tough really tough their effort doesn't get rewarded does it it, it doesn't i remember one uh, young adult i think she was 19 or 20 when i first started working with her and she said that she thought going through school her middle name was ken do better because all she heard was Devorah can do better <laughs> that was her middle name oh. thought, uh, how, how you know sad right and, and I think you know we just need to have compassion that these students are working really hard or if they've given up there's a good reason for them giving up because as human beings we all have mastery motivation like we all want to master our world and what I say to parents is if, if if your child is backing away from mastering something, get curious, like go in and investigate, try to understand like why, because if they're able to master, that's just, you know, kind of a, a natural um, desire or trait that we have. So if they're avoiding something, there's usually a good reason for that avoidance. And let's have a conversation to understand the whys and then find ways to, to address that.
The other interesting thing that I picked up from one of your talks was the idea about the left brain and the right brain, which obviously we know lots of researchers out there on that now. But for you as a young girl, that left side of the brain didn't really connect with the rest of your body. Is that correct? Yeah. So the, the part of my brain that maps uh, sensation onto the left side of my body, like just knowing, you know, like we, we just, we don't have to really watch where our body is. Our brain tells us as we're moving, you know, how close we are to a door, you know, how much we, we've moved. It's, it's really important for navigation, for sports. Well, the part of my brain that, that registered the location of the left side of my body was not working very well. So uh, that was where my mother saw that how accident prone I was. So if I was walking through a door, I wouldn't know how close the left side of my body was. So I could bounce off the door jam. But also I didn't register the location of sensation. So I would do things like, you know, put my hand on a hot burner, not intentionally. I wasn't looking at that burner. Um, and I would feel pain. I mean, my brain would register pain, but it wouldn't register where the pain is coming from. And normally, like your brain says, you know, pain, it registers that it's in your hand and you, you know, you move your hand off of that hot burner. My brain didn't tell me to do that. So I learned very early that I had to watch the left side of my body because it was, you know, it was a danger. You know, I was a danger to myself. But as a child of a family of five and your mom also working, were you constantly being wrapped in cotton wool for being were you protected extra because they knew what a danger you could be to yourself not not really I mean this was again like 50s and 60s and this was a time where you know you kind of you know and we were in a small town so you know I spent a lot of time outside you know running about and and getting into accidents and um you know fracturing this or breaking that you know um it's just a very clumsy child and and you know and in school i was always the last person picked for a sports team like really none of my classmates wanted me on their team and i understand because i was so clumsy that i was not an asset to you know any athletic endeavor so you know i i struggled academically because of the learning difficulties but i also struggled you know some students can do poor academically but they can do well in terms of sport i didn't do well in either arena that's really upsetting, isn't it, to think back to that. And I wonder if you, you know, in a really moving recount of extreme helplessness, you must have experienced it during school, which, again, in those tender years where you're developing and you're growing, all sorts of emotions are going through your, your mind and, and your heart, obviously, which would have been incredibly isolating for you and maybe even quite lonely. I know you took a lot of comfort in your pet cat, um, Star, but you also mentioned that you've experienced the, well, it's quite awful, but the, the shame was the word that came up in, in some of the work that I read. And then again, you very sadly even attempted to end your own life at one point and then felt shame. The attempt didn't go well. I mean, thank goodness for us that it didn't because you've for so many reasons, I'm so grateful. But tell me how you overcame this feeling of wanting to give up. Uh, well, you know, I think, you know, I was 13 when I attempted to end my life. And it was really, I was finishing elementary school. So finishing grade eight here. And it was such a struggle. I could not imagine how I could handle high school, right? And it was just despair. And then as you you mentioned, you know, at that time, because of my learning difficulty, I didn't really know how one went about doing it. And I did what I thought you did. And I figured you go to bed and you don't wake up in the morning. Well, of course I woke up and I am grateful that that happened. But it, at the time it was like, well, I failed at this too. So it was another opportunity, but I figured, okay, I'm here. 
So I just have to keep soldiering on. I just have to keep keep trying. And I was also very lucky in my father. Like he was a, a scientist um, and an inventor. And he had this belief that he instilled in me. And he said, you know, if there's a problem in the world and there's no solution currently, he said, it's your responsibility to go out and try to find a solution. And, and then he said something that I've held, you know, dear to me forever. He said, if the rest of the world tells you you can't do it, he said, don't listen. He said, this is how science goes forward. He said, don't be limited by conventional wisdom. And so I feel like I was set on a quest. I had no idea how to do it. Would I be successful? But it was kind of on a quest to try to find a solution uh, to my learning difficulties. And that was kind of my guiding star. And it was always there in the back of my mind. And so then in August of 1977, many years later, when somebody handed me Luria's book, The Man with the Shattered World, that was the answer to my quest, right? Which, you know, identifying what was wrong in my brain, because first, if you're solving a problem, you have to understand what is the nature of the problem. And then at the same time, uh, coming across the work of Mark Rosenschweig at Berkeley, who was looking at neuroplasticity, you know, that our brain actually is capable of change as a result of stimulation. So for me, that was when the light bulb went off. That if I can understand the nature of my problem, like what isn't working in my brain, can I find an activity or a task to make that part of my brain work, to do the stimulation? And you know, that's where I started in, you know, 1977 and led to this work. And now I think we're in 94, 95 schools in uh, 13 countries, right? And that's my, my vision is to make this work accessible, to reach all children that are struggling. Yeah, thank goodness for you. Like I said, I'm so pleased that your attempt was a failed attempt because I'm so <laughs> grateful, as I said earlier. But then you get to university, which is huge a massive achievement, clearly, with everything else that you're going through. And you've got your dad's voice in the back of your mind as well. You find your passion with, in teaching and working with young kids specifically. You started observing and learning from kids who had challenges in school. And then you begin your research and you come across the book that you just mentioned, The Man with the Shattered Brain. Now, I would love for you to talk to us about this monumentous occasion and how it shaped everything that you've done following the discovery of that book. Yeah, so, I mean... It's just, you know, the fact that a book can change your life, right? Like it, and I dedicated, I, I dedicated my book to Luria because I feel like I owe a life debt, you know, that concept of a life debt. I owe a life debt to his work. Like if he hadn't done his work, I could not have done my work, right? It's like that concept of standing on the shoulder of a giant. And so this book, it was just written in, in a way that I could understand it. Because remember, I struggled with comprehension and I would read things over and over again and, and I'd draw diagrams and I'd highlight with different colors. Um, but in this book, it was the journal of a Russian soldier, Leo Zizetsky, who had a, a head wound during World War II. So Zizetsky was writing in his journal all the things he was struggling with, the things he could no longer do. Um, after his injury, he couldn't tell time. Well, I was 26 now and I still couldn't read a clock. I still couldn't tell time because I couldn't make the relationship between the hour hand and the minute hand. So that, that's how severe my difficulty was. I could not connect two things. Um, you know, Zizetsky talked about how fractions were really difficult for him. Like, you know, he couldn't see a relationship of a part to a whole, things like bigger than, less than, 
everything he described, I was describing in my journal. Like these were all my realities. And as you know, this book unfolded, Zazetsky was talking about his struggles, but then Lurie was saying what was going on in his brain. You know, what was the part that, you know, where the damage was, what was its job, and therefore why could Zazetsky not do what he did? And he he talked about, he said, this part of the brain, because it it connects ideas for insight, relationships, for comprehension. He said, if you have a problem here, you walk around in a constant state of uncertainty where you can never verify meaning. There are no relationships in your world. And when I read that, I got chills because that described me to a T, right? I, I, that's there was that you know sense of the ground always moving under my feet. There was no place that was safe, and it wasn't emotional. It was cognitive because I couldn't make connections. I couldn't uh, like imagine living in a world where there are no relationships. You don't understand why people do things or why things are happening. So this was you know a huge aha moment for me that you know the, the, reading this book understanding that this man and I are living parallel lives, like half a world apart and several decades, uh, you know, later. And then understanding that it's my brain. So that was so critical. And I thought, okay, great. I have, I have some understanding now, but what do I do about it? And then that was Rosenschweig's work. And he was working with rats because there was still, this was in 1977, there was still the belief that there wasn't human neuroplasticity. You know, like so, but I figured if rats had neuroplasticity, which Rosenschweig was demonstrating in his experiments, that you could put rats in a really enriched environment with lots of toys and stimulation, and they became better at learning mazes, which is like a rat intelligence test. And then when he looked at their brains, they had changed physiologically. So he said that stimulation led to functional changes in the brain, which led to better learning. And I thought, if rats can do it, surely humans must be able to do it. And, and then I went at that time, I was in graduate school studying school psychology, which, you know, no accident. That's where I went into school psychology to try to understand what was wrong with me. And I went to my professors and I said, I understand what's wrong with me now. Right. Um, and they the, first they said, well, you couldn't be in graduate school and have a learning difficulty because at that time, the belief was you couldn't be gifted and have a learning difficulty, which now we know can happen. And then they said, and and again, remember this was 1977, and they, and they said, learning difficulties have nothing to do with the brain. I'm not sure what they thought they were related to, but at that time it wasn't the brain. And then they said, and even if it was the brain, your brain is fixed, so there's nothing you can do about it. And I had that voice of my father in my head saying, don't be limited by conventional wisdom. He said, if the rest of the world says you can't do it, he said, go out and try. And I had no idea if I'd be successful because you know that there was no template no nothing to say that that maybe this would work but i thought i have to try something because i i was really desperate i thought nobody's ever going to hire me i i'm going to be you know out on the street with my shopping cart um because i no, i really i, I had that image um, because because i just like I just didn't fit in. I didn't understand my world. Um, so I thought I, I need to try to create an exercise. And I came to the conclusion, why not try clocks? And the idea was I didn't want to learn how to tell time. That isn't the intention behind any of these, these programs. I wanted to force my brain to process relationships. And that's a relationship. And it was a relationship I couldn't process. And 
so I created a whole series of exercises, you know, drawing clocks, trying to read clocks. I had to have a friend help me because I couldn't tell time. But after like, I don't know, hundreds and hundreds of hours doing this, something clicked in my brain and I started to be able to process relationships. And then I kept making it more difficult, right? Like adding this idea of complexity, you know, like once your brain is processing at a certain level, you have to make it more difficult to force it to continue to process. And I'll never forget like the day that I knew there was human neuroplasticity, right? Where I was listening to 60 minutes on TV and, you know, it's, it's, you know, there's a lot of information that you have to make connections. And I had never been able to really understand it. I used to watch it with a friend and he would always kind of translate, like he would break it down into chunks and, you know, I had my own little translator there. And I remember watching it and turning to him and explaining to him something before he turned to me to explain it. And it was so profound, right? Because I was understanding in real time. And before I lived in what I called lag time, I was hours behind anybody in understanding anything. And sometimes I never did. And now I could listen and I could understand as the information unfolded. And it was it was so profound. Like with the best will in the world, I could never accomplish that because my brain couldn't process information in that way. Now I could because my brain was able to process information. And then I set up a whole bunch of tests for myself for, you know, I'd always want to read philosophy, which is, you know, conceptually very dense. And I, I could read the words, but I never understood it. And I had access to a philosophy library. So I pulled a book off the shelf. I read a page and I thought, oh my gosh, I understand that. But then I thought maybe I picked a really easy book. So then I pulled another book off the shelf and read it and understood it. And by the time I was finished, I had a hundred books piled up around me because I kept testing myself. And it, it was, um, it was just magical, right? That that um, I could read something and understand. I could listen to people and understand them. Um, I went back and taught myself all the mathematics from grade one right up to college. And now I could not just memorize formulas, I could actually understand the concepts. Um, I could understand jokes. Like before, I would laugh when other people did, but I didn't understand jokes because I didn't understand irony. Um, you know, it, it was, it was, you know, you talked about that fog, it was like the fog lifted, and I could see the world clearly. And it was, I could, and I understood why people did things like my relationships with people change. Oh, Barbara, my heart is imploding. I'm so, I, I'm so moved. I'm so touched. I'm in awe of your resilience and your perseverance with this, because obviously, what we haven't explained to our listeners is how rigorous the training you created for yourself was, how long you spent on the exercises that you conducted, and how disciplined you must have been in sticking to such a strict routine. Would you care to share a little bit about that? Um, sure. Yeah. And again, yeah. I was I was desperate, like because I, 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 as I said, I didn't really see a future for myself, so I was putting my whole heart into doing this. And as I said, like no idea if it would work, but I thought, you know. What I have to lose but time, and I can't tell time. So <laughs> let, me, let me try. Um, so yeah, and you know, I wouldn't necessarily recommend that people do it this way, but I would get up in the morning and work on the exercise. I would have lunch, go back and work on the exercise, um, have dinner, go back and work on the exercise. You know, fall into bed next morning. You know, rinse and repeat. I, I just every single day, you know, would work like six, eight. 10 hours. And, and we know it doesn't require that amount of work to at this point to change the brain. But I just, 
I was determined to really give this um, a wholehearted effort to see whether it would work. And and as I said, it, it did. And I kept having to make it more and more difficult as I went along to just, you know, really try to push my brain. And then when I saw that change, I had other learning difficulties, that one where I was really uncoordinated, right? And I thought, I, I need to address that because, you know, I was still quite accident prone. And so I created a very different exercise for that, what worked through that and saw the change, right? Because the idea is for each one of these cognitive areas, you have to understand kind of what the brain is doing and then create an exercise or an activity to stimulate and work it. So each one is very different. And now I can actually play sports. You know, I will never be gifted, but I can play sports. I am not accident prone. I know where the left side of my body is in space. You know, if I hurt myself on the left side, my brain registers where that sensation is. And then I had a spatial difficulty. I'd always get lost. And whenever I went anywhere, I had to calculate in what I called lost time. Like I'd add an extra hour to let myself get lost multiple times. Um, and so I created a different exercise for that. And now I can read maps. I travel all around the world. I don't get lost. Um, you know, it, I can build Ikea furniture. You know, you, you have to go from, you know, two-dimensional representation into three-dimensional space. And if you have the difficulty I had, you can't do that. So even for me, when I learned how to sew uh, in high school, right, I took home economics, I spent more time ripping seams out than I sewed them because I'd sew things on upside down and backwards because I couldn't do that, you know, translation. Remarkable. I mean, I, I think there must have been fireworks or something kind of huge display of excitement going on in your mind when you finally realized that the exercises you were developing were having massive impact and change in your day to day existence. What was it like for you to go back to your researchers, your parents, to your teachers? How did it all come about when you explain what it is that you were working on? It's very interesting. There wasn't really much interest, right? Because there was still the, the belief, not, not in my family. I mean, the family was fine, but in the professionals that I talked to, because again, this was like now 1978, 1980, and it was still what I call the pre-neuroplastic paradigm. It was still that time, or Norman Doidge, who wrote The Brain That Changes Itself, he calls it the dark ages of neuroplasticity, right? Because the belief was your brain was fixed. So if one has that belief system, they're not going to be really interested in something that's saying different, right? So I just found, I found really very little interest, very little support. So I thought at that time, I could do one of two things, spend a lot of time arguing with people and trying to demonstrate, you know, that there was validity to what I was doing, or I could continue to do it and I could work with people that were struggling. And so obviously that's the route I chose. I said, I want to make this work accessible. I set up a school in Toronto uh, and started working with students. And I thought if there's truth and validity to this work over time, the world will see it. And here we are, right? Like, so, and probably, you know, my basic nature, I'm not a fighter. So that, that path of, you know, you know, trying to convince people. And I don't know that that would have worked because we were still in that paradigm, you know, of the brain being fixed and unchangeable. So rather than argue against it, prove that actually the opposite is true. And that's, that's what I, what I did. And, you know, now you can't, you just open a book or a newspaper and there's, you're constantly reading about neuroplasticity. We know our brain isn't fixed. Um, 
And we know that a lot of conditions that in the past we thought were lifelong aren't. Like if, if we can understand the principles of neuroplasticity and effectively harness them to address like things like chronic pain, you know, a lot of you know, depression, anxiety, learning difficulties, traumatic brain injury, post-traumatic stress disorder. There's huge application. I think you said at the, the beginning when we started chatting about hope, like to me, that you know, neuroplasticity offers so much hope, right? The, the things that we thought were fixed and unchangeable and we had to live with, just like I was told in grade one. Well, actually we know now that's not the case. No, I know. And thank goodness for that. You're honestly such a pioneer for so many things that we've, we all draw on now. The basic understanding of neuroplasticity and the brain's malleability is, as you rightly say, was only something that we've really come to terms with in, in recent years. But, and you honestly, as you mentioned, you, you know, the acceptance of your new ideas probably takes some time, as you, as you said. But I wondered if you feel and maybe I'm wrong here, but in order for this paradigm shift to be accepted by others, one, yes, the science was in there, probably your, your research was one of very few that must have been around, but also I wondered if you being a female presented any resistance to uptake. I have absolutely thoughts on that. And the answer is yes. I, you know, I, I've, I've been in a few few meetings where you know, I thought if I was a different gender, it would have gone very differently. And, and I think that that's shifting, but it's still, I mean, I think we'd be naive to say it doesn't still exist. And, um, you know, and, and I think it's a much smaller segment of, of the population that's, that still kind of has that, that um, attitude, but I, I run into it. But, I, you know, I work with some amazing, you know, researchers around the world and there's no issue in terms of, of, of gender, you know, in, in terms of the work. But, but it's, 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 you know, sadly, it's, it's still in some places um, a factor. And I just think, you know, I'm I'm kind of uh, stubborn and pig-headed, maybe a little bit, and I just figure, you know, I'm not going to let anything stop me, right? I'll just I'll just continue to do the work, and I'll I'll find the people that I need to find that um, are open. You know, Carol Dweck's work, that open mindset. Um, you know, that's to me, you know, and that's kind of what my father was talking about. Is like, you know, be open to possibilities. Um, and, you know, if, if you see something that is kind of an anomaly based on, you know, what you previously previously thought, get curious and explore it, because uh, that's where the, the, the gifts are, right? And it's, it's not just doing the things the same old way. Um, so, yeah, that's, I mean, I just really, that's what I focus on is, is that positivity, open mindset, just, you know, putting one foot in front of the other and keep moving forward. That's right. Yeah, it, it aligns exactly with the program that I'm working on with young girls on mentoring them about exactly this. And when you use growth mindset, when you use the science behind Carol Dweck's work, your work, neuroplasticity, and talking to them about the actual organ, this brain, this this massive piece of muscle that we can really make work for us if we, if we give it a, a chance. But one of the things that I think as an educator, and maybe even as a parent, I find interesting is that many times in schools, even at home as a parent, when you're busy or in a classroom full of lots of children, we try and find solutions or ways to work around a child's problem. You know, we don't go underneath to find, like you said, be curious enough to overcome these problems, which is such a revelation. And I wonder if you have any advice for teachers or parents who are 
may be curious about a child's learning style and don't know what the first step is to take, what would you say what that would be? I think the first step, as I said, is, is be curious, like just and, and have a conversation with the child. Like I, to me, it still surprises me that um, often we don't ask the child, right, who's having the, the experience. Like and, and sometimes, I, you know, people ask, what would I have wanted growing up? And, and I just wish like more open discussions and conversations. Um, you know, you talk about that shame because I, I felt ashamed because I couldn't do certain things. So you try to hide it. Like we need to take this out into the open and just have open, curious conversations. So I would say for teachers, for parents, you know, really just open the dialogue with the child and, and you know, support them in exploring and getting them to articulate, you know, what their experience is. Like, you know, they're, they're the one having the experience. So get them to start talking about that and and partner with the child in terms of you know certainly you know workarounds or compensations and I'm not against those because they allowed me to get through school you know to the point that I could create this work so but uh, but the child is the one having the experience so they should be your ally in working out you know what might actually work with them and then I think the the other thing that's really important is, you know, these conversations around neuroplasticity, which you talked about, that, you know, our brain isn't fixed. And, you know, if there's a learning difficulty, you know, it, it can be within a very rich, you know, neurological environment. Like there can be lots of gifts and strengths and maybe like one or two pieces that that aren't either quite wired correctly or aren't as strong as they need to be in their connectivity and helping the child look at also where the positives are, because often we just focus on the things that are struggle and that, that are, are negative. And even for me growing up, like, you know, that the memory pieces that I had, I didn't see those as gifts, right? Um, so I think it, it's, it's having those open conversations. I think it also speaks to the fact that it normalizes the idea that even if those poor kids, sometimes in many schools, if you do have a learning difficulty that is identified, you're pulled out of classes. So you're already feeling lost. You're already feeling a bit different to everybody else. And then that somebody comes in and says, oh, you need extra help. Come on out. You know. And so if you're doing it as part of the normal curriculum, you're helping so many elements of their self-esteem, I, I would assume. It's obviously something that strengthens all of our brains. We could all do with help in in learning these exercises. I wonder, again, we use the word neuroplasticity, and I know we've used it quite a lot today, but for anyone that doesn't really understand what it means, I know it's quite obvious in some respects, would you like to give us a definition for the, for the person who may not understand the actual definition? Yeah, sure. So at a very simple level, it means our, our brain is capable of change functionally and physiologically and structurally. But it, it means that, you know, we know as a result of stimulation and uh, an enrichment and activity, that um, we can increase neurotransmitters, like the things that are really critical for the brain to function efficiently. We can um, increase glia cells, which are really important to neurotransmission. We can increase the number of dendrites, which are kind of those little branches on the synapses, right? So more, more synaptic connections, which is you know, better neurotransmission. So the idea is that the stimulation changes the brain physiologically which allows it to function more efficiently and effectively. Uh, we know this that there's actually neurogenesis, which when I started, first there was no neuroplasticity. Then there was a belief, yes, there is neuroplasticity, but there's no new neurons born in your brain. I remember, I, I can't remember, I think it was 1986, 
seven or I can't, I don't remember exactly, but someone handed me the Scientific American magazine on uh, Fred Gage's work showing that there was neurogenesis. I just about left off the sidewalk, like that not only that our brain can actually grow new neurons, right? So, you know, this, our brain is an amazing organ, you know, and it, it's just, it's designed for us to be flexible and adaptable and be lifelong learners. So it makes sense that, that it's this plastic, that it can change. And we're seeing a pattern for students with learning difficulties. There's this pattern where their areas of the brain that are underconnected, so they're weak in their connectivity. And then there are areas of the brain that are hyperconnected, so they're overconnected. And the hypothesis is that those hyperconnected areas are trying to compensate for the underconnected areas. So they're working really, really hard, but they can't really do this, what those underconnected areas are supposed to be doing. So they're working really hard, but inefficiently, which is like the experience of a child with a learning difficulty in school. They're working really hard, but inefficiently. I mean, it's so profound that, you know, their external experience is being mirrored in their internal experience in the brain. And as the students are going through this work, what we're seeing is those underconnected areas start to strengthen in connectivity and the hyperconnected areas start to relax. So the brain is starting to process and work much more efficiently. You know, to me, I said for over 40 years ago, this work is going to change the brain, which then is going to lead to cognitive changes, like the ability to learn differently, which then is going to lead to acquisition of academic skills, and it's going to lead to social emotional well-being. And all the research is showing exactly that. Like, it, it, you know. so funny that yeah, yeah, you've just led me on to exactly my next question: is it's not just the academic side of life that improves, right? It's your social emotional well-being, which is exactly all the work that's being put out there now, and it's so important. Do you? Also, then, does this lead into mental health as well? Are there ways of working with these exercises that might help depression, uh, anxiety? Because I know hormone levels of that are released in and out, the dopamine, the serotonin, all of the releases that lead to chemical imbalances also affect learning. Yeah, I, I would say that where we see, I mean, we definitely see reduction in uh, depression and anxiety as individuals go through this work. However, it tends to be tied to the learning difficulty, right? So uh, we haven't ever applied the work if there's depression without a learning difficulty. So, but, but definitely we see um, both with, with students, uh, young students, with adults, uh, with adolescents, uh, you know, significant shift like anxiety reduces depression, conduct disorders reduce. Uh, we're just now doing a, a trial in a team challenge, an organization uh, that's around the world, but we're working in, in uh, Australia and Queensland uh, with young adults with addiction problems. Uh, and we're working on one of the cognitive exercises with them and we're starting to see um, really interesting results because th that salience network is implicated in in addiction, right? So, and the, the frontal parietal, the executive control network. So I'm really, really excited. It's kind of early days, um, you know, yet. And, you know, with the school-age students that we work with, um, we've done some research on social emotional outcomes uh, with researchers at the University of British Columbia. And one of the measures they used was one of Carol Dweck's measures. And I remember the researchers saying, oh, your students developed this incremental theory of mind. Well, I said, you can't be in an Aerosmith classroom and think your brain is fixed because you're driving neuroplastic change. So obviously you're gonna develop an incremental theory of mind. It kind of goes- uh, With the territory, yeah. 
but but the other thing that was really interesting, they looked at cortisol levels, um, and the students loved it because they got to spit, you know, at the beginning of the study and at the end of the study. And again, it was a positive trend. It hadn't reached uh, statistical significance, but a positive trend in reduction in cortisol for these students because as they're improving cognitively, you know, they feel like they have locus of control. That was another thing they felt they had locus of control. They were an agent of change in their lives. And they reported feeling happier and, you know, better sense of well-being because they can master their world because now they have the cognitive resources to do that. So to me, it's like our, our brain isn't just about reading, writing, and arithmetic. Like our brain mediates our relationship to ourselves, to other people, and to our world. It is so profound. You change the brain and all of that, that you know, one's whole world and relationship to the world and to themselves changes. Oh, geesh, I'm so moved by all of this. It's so inspiring. I think there's so much ahead for the Aerosmith program. I think this is revolutionary. It's something that as many people should be listening to. I think it's a message that has to keep going out there. Sitting here now thinking about this fragmented self of yours that you probably have just described to me. If you could go back today and give your teen self a message from the experiences you've gained now, what would that message be? Oh, that's a, that's a really interesting question. Um, I think it, it would be um, not to give up, which I, which I didn't. Um, uh, and that there, there is hope and there is, there are solutions. Like at, at the moment, there may not feel like there's a solution, but there is hope and there, there is, is a solution. Yeah. Yeah. And your patience and perseverance are such admirable qualities in you. I don't know if you've always had them or if it was this drive, this mission that your father gave you, which spurred you on to so many wonderful, exciting research activities and, and amazing work. But would you say then your, your role model was your dad or did you have other role models as well? I'd say my dad. My dad was my, was my uh, role model. And I think, you know, he, uh, yeah, I mean, by instilling that belief in, and he believed in me, like I, I knew fundamentally, uh, even with all the struggles, um, he, he saw, you know, he saw me. And was he, what was it like for him when you came up with the research? Tell me what that moment was like for the two of you. It wasn't until many years later that, that I went um, back, you know, and had these conversations with him. And, and he, was, um, he was profoundly sad that he hadn't realized the degree of my pain and suffering. Because, you know, as a, a person with a learning difficulty, I was really good at hiding it. And that's, that's not uncommon. Like, you know, I went... I, when I was doing the interviews for my book, um, you know, I would sit around the room with lots of students with learning difficulties and they, you know, we'd be passing the Kleenex box around and they would be telling me stories of bullying. And, um, and then I would have conversations with their parents and they really had no idea of the amount of pain and suffering that their children were experiencing because their children had made a pact of silence. Like we don't want to burden our parents. So we're going to keep quiet. And then the parents would talk about, well, we don't really want to talk to our children about their difficulties because then they um, may feel inadequate. Like, so this, this pact of silence on both sides, actually, I think is really harmful. Yeah, I'm sure the sense of pride and excitement from him would have been uh, remarkable, really. 
As I said earlier, you really are a living example and embody the meaning of determination, passion, resilience in abundance. You've worked so hard and I'm going to use my own term, elevate so much of what we know and what we teach and what we apply today. I think the pioneering work you've done is just the most groundbreaking, inspiring thing. And I think um, I pray and hope that the work that you do continues to grow and reach as many people as possible. If anyone wanted to get more information on it and I will link your TED talk your book and your website onto the show notes but are there any other places that you would direct anyone to that might be interested after hearing our conversation to get more information yeah I think the website has a wealth of information our website erasmusschool.org um you know there are lots of videos the research like I, I would encourage people if they're interested in the research they're the actual studies but then there are the researchers talking about the research and explaining what's going on in the the brain. Um, so I would encourage people to, yeah, to um, read that. And then Howard Eaton wrote two books, uh, which are free downloads, right? He's generously donated those to the world. So they're on our website. Um, so one's called The Brain Pioneer, which is a children's book. And it tells kind of my story as a brain pioneer. But he, he wrote, it's beautifully written. He did a beautiful job. And it educates children on neuroplasticity and on the brain and on, you know, persistence and quests and, and all of this, right? So I would encourage that. And then, yeah, so yes. Brilliant. No, I've, I've seen that book and I've loved it. I'm using it in my program. I think it's a wonderful story. So thank you to Howard Eaton for doing that and putting that out there. And I've also linked that in the, in the show notes as well, because I think it's a, a great resource for parents to have, especially when they're maybe first learning about difficulties around their child's uh, development. Yeah, hugely important. Last question before we sign off. What do you hope to see change for well, not just girls, but I, I think all children in the future. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, to, I want to change how we educate, <laughs> you know, our, our, I mean, our, our children are our future. I mean, I know it's sort of trite, but that, that, that is so true. And, you know, we don't know what is going to be required in 20 years from now. Like, you know, our future is kind of uncertain, but if we prepare students with the cognitive resources to be flexible, to be adaptable, to be lifelong learners. It doesn't really matter, you know, what's gonna be out there in 20 years, they're gonna be ready to meet that. So I think, you know, my rallying cry is, let's bring the brain into education. And in parallel, as we're educating students, let's work the brain because that's what we learn with. Oh, I a thousand percent champion that. And I'm so grateful that we've had this opportunity to connect. I feel such a kinship to you and so grateful again. I've got so much gratitude and appreciation for the work that you're doing. Thank you so much for taking the time to share your story, your journey and your work with us today, Barbara. Well, thank you. It's, it's really been an honor and a pleasure and a delight. So thank you. And that's everything from us today. Thank you to all of you for joining in and being part of these very important conversations. I hope you will continue to support our cause by sharing the podcast to raise awareness with others. If you get a moment and could rate and review the podcast, I would also be hugely grateful. I'd like to extend a very big thank you to Ryan Prestipino from The Pine Studios for all the hard work that he does to help me bring this podcast to all of you. Until next time, stay well and speak soon. Bye for now.